Do you think of yourself as a public speaker? Let me rephrase that. Do you ever speak in public to try to get somebody to understand something? Would you like some professional-level public speaking ninja tips? Listen to this interview I did with Dave Bricker and have your ninja tip notebook ready because you're going to want to write some stuff down. Hello, this is Judy Rodman. You're listening to All Things Vocal Podcast. This is the audio version of the blog you can find at judyrodman.com. So I don't usually read people's stories like they write them on their websites and stuff, but Dave Bricker's story is so good that I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I think he planned it that way. Uh, So anyway, here goes. As a young man, Dave Bricker was inspired by the remarkable people he met in Miami's secret floating village. The sailboat anchorage a quarter mile offshore from Miami City Hall attracted world travelers, squatters, and dreamers. All had remarkable stories to tell. By his senior year in college, he was living aboard his own tiny sailboat. Soon after graduation, he set sail for the Bahamas with a locker full of food and dreams and 40 whole dollars in his pocket. His voyages took him up and down the Bahamas, up the east coast of the U.S. to Chesapeake Bay, and across from Atlantic to Gibraltar. He ran aground, dealt with mechanical breakdowns, got seasick more than once, slept in a volcano, survived powerful storms, and returned to the land of clocks and calendars with what he'd gone in search of, stories of his own. I'll say... Today, as a speaker, trainer, and coach, Dave Bricker helps remarkable people tell remarkable stories through writing, speaking, graphic design, video, technology, and music. If you want to say it, share it, or sell it, bring him your story, and he'll help you tell it. I could almost write a song to that, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Bricker, I'm so happy that you're here with us on All Things Vocal. Judy, thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. All right, let's get right into it. Your work, as I just read in your bio, revolves around storytelling. And stories are, of course, told with the speaking voice. And I would be willing to make a large bet that every one of you right now who are listening to All Things Vocal speak in public for important reasons. Whether you're an event speaker, a business person, teacher, professor, minister, TV or radio host or guest, or a music artist who speaks between songs and gives interviews. Your speaking voice matters a ton. So, Dave, tell us why storytelling is such an invaluable skill, no matter what the situation is. How do stories work? How do stories work? Great question. Stories are the most powerful form of communication we humans have. And I'll give you a quick example of that. How many times... Have you watched a movie and 10 minutes in, you knew it was going to be terrible, but you had to find out how the story ends. And 90 minutes later, two hours later, you're like, yep, it was terrible, but I found out how it ended. Stories are sticky because we all want to find out what happens. How did they end? And if we can learn to apply storytelling techniques in our messaging, whatever that messaging may happen to be, whether it's a, an advertising message or asking somebody out on a date or asking for a raise, there are some powerful thought patterns, some powerful pieces of human nature that we can tap into. 
that makes all the sense in the world. It's really an interactive sport, and even if you're the only one that's audibly talking. Absolutely. And I love the point you brought up in the beginning, that I was a teacher for 15 years, and none of the other faculty members, or myself, we never thought of ourselves as professional speakers. If you had come in and said, how many people in the room are professional <laughs> speakers? Nobody would have raised the, our hand. And yet, we were all teaching four-hour classes to college kids. <laughs> exactly, and being paid for it. Yeah. yeah, professional speakers. We were being paid to speak for way too long. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and presenters of all kinds. You know, they just—you're right—they don't think of themselves as, as that. And we're doing so many teleseminars now and things like that on the web. Even the concierge or the or the the reservations agent at a hotel or an airline desk. What do these people do? They speak all day long to people. They have to know what to say and how to say it, just like the rest of us. So how do you take an extraordinary experience like crossing an ocean on a wooden boat or climbing a mountain or finishing a marathon and use that story to connect with other people? I love that question. And the reason is because so many people get it wrong. And I'll give you an example. I was watching a speaker talk about his ascent to the top of Mount Everest, which it's a pretty exciting thing. It's not something that's on my bucket list, but not too many people get to the top of Everest, right? Right. The truth be told, 4,000 people have been to the top of Everest, but it's still a remarkable thing to do. But after a while, the story started to get boring, and I couldn't figure out why. I mean, this is Mount Everest, and what a, what a feat of, of strength and endurance and training to get to the top of Everest. And yet, the problem was the story was about him. And after a while, people in the audience started drifting away, checking their cell phones. So the way you take your gigantic story or your little story, it doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter, as they say. You make your story. You tell your story about the audience. So I can talk about crossing the Atlantic Ocean, which was 38 days at sea. But if in a few minutes I don't get to my listeners situation, the oceans that they have to cross in life and business and make my, my journey a metaphor for their journey, they're flat out going to lose interest. Oh my gosh, that makes sense. I never have really thought about it that way, but that's the way I like to coach song singing too, that it doesn't matter what we feel. It's about what we make somebody else feel. Absolutely. It's just not interesting unless it has to do with their lives. Awesome. That's worth this whole <laughs> episode, that one ninja hey, It was trip. great talking to you. No, just kidding. Quit <laughs> <laughs> while I'm ahead. <laughs> Let's follow this bouncing ball a little farther. What about if we don't have a story that's extraordinary? What about the simple stories? I guess we could make one up or super embellish it based on fact, you know, like great songwriters and screenwriters do. And I've known some people that actually have done that with their bios. <laughs> but where do you draw the line at stories that are less than 100% true? Do you ever adapt a story to fit your audience? I've adapted stories and I've even made stories up. And I've got plenty. <laughs> well, I've got plenty of material to pull real life stories from, and I've even told stories that were that where I changed them because if I told you what really happened, it's just flat out not believable. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, I know some. 
you know, I, when, when I coach storytellers, I always say, be a journeyist, not a journalist. If you are writing Ooh. for a newspaper, if you're gathering facts, if you're writing an article for a magazine, then your job is to, is to find out what happened and what it means. And at least when it comes to the people, places, names, dates, all of that kind of stuff, be as factual as possible. But if you're telling a story within a speech, it's not about being a journalist. It's, it's about transforming your listener in some way and change that story as much as you need to, to produce that desired effect. How do you want mm-hmm. them to think, feel, or act differently at the end of the story? And life doesn't unfold in neat, tidy paragraphs and chapters. It's kind of a hodgepodge and you've got to pick things out that matter, eliminate the parts of the story that, might have even been big, but aren't important in the message and streamline the whole thing because people lose patience pretty quickly. You know, in the real old days, I think they used to call those parables, didn't they? (laughs) That's certainly one form. (laughs) Too cool. Okay. Makes sense again. And that's what movie people do all the time. Uh, Okay. So what about actually voicing the story or making a sound that carries the story on it? I love the following refrigerator magnet worthy phrases that I found in one of your videos on your site. So talk to us about each one of these, and I'm going to name the three of them. You can talk about them however you want to. One, turn nervous into service. I love that so much. Well, thank you. Two, (laughs) two, rediscover the power of the pause. Well done. And three... (laughs) And three, focus on your listener instead of on yourself. And we've gone into that just a little bit, but yeah, take that farther. So the first one is turn nervous into service. And everybody's afraid of public speaking. I know professional speakers who have been doing it for years (laughs) who are on some level still afraid of public speaking. And depending on the performance, I don't feel nervous ahead of it anymore, but sometimes at the end of it, I'll get this big rush of adrenaline where I didn't realize I was nervous. <laughs> but being nervous is all about you. It's all about the things that you're afraid of. It's all about the things that you are insecure about. It's all about what you think might go wrong. And that's about that's in your head. And if you're giving a speech, you need to be thinking about the audience and putting something valuable in their head. So by thinking about the audience, by being of service, you're focusing on something other than the endless stream of what ifs that we invent <laughs> to be nervous about. So I kind of feel like if, if you're either thinking about yourself or you're thinking about the audience, if you're thinking about yourself, you're not going to connect. Focus on the audience and they will receive that and appreciate that. Turn nervous into service. Awesome. This is the way I teach singing as well. One of the best ways to get over stage fright is to focus on the audience and ask yourself what you're singing. How, you know, why would that relate to them? You're not singing necessarily to them because it could be to a character in your song if the lyric is to that uh, character. But, uh, you know, it's for the audience. And without them in the mix, it's just kind of a narcissistic sort of um, exploding of sound out of your mouth to me. (laughs) (laughs) And narcissism is the only disease in the world where the sicker you are, the better you feel. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Okay, talk about that pause thing, because, man, do I hear a lot of 
you know what? I hear a lot of podcasts. This is one of my pet peeves about people that edit too much and they take all the pauses out and it sounds like one giant run on sentence. So pauses are where the power is. Your message does not live in the words. Your message lives in the echo of the words. Ooh. When you give your listener time to reflect, time to think, or just time to wait, so I could take something, here's an exercise I love to do. Have you ever wanted to speak out, but were afraid to say anything? Sounds like the kind of line you might use to start a speech. And there's so many things we can do to make that line just so much more powerful. One is to just put a gap in there. Have you ever wanted to speak out, but were afraid? Ooh, that's great. Now, and then, of course, you can really get into the dynamics. Have you ever wanted to speak out, but were afraid to say anything? And you're playing those opposites, the dynamic range, but the pause, the pause just kills it. And that's where comedy comes from. It's not the words. It's the space between the words. Music is the same way. Sometimes it's what you don't play that makes it musical. Stop blowing all those notes and, and let that phrase echo in your listener's head. Mm -hmm. And phrasing, phrasing to me is the flow of thought. So uninterrupted, it becomes white noise to the ear. It's not defined into separate and manageable and understandable, you know, thought blobs that we as human beings communicate with. Another thing about pauses and I've seen people do this so many times. They'll start a speech, great, with a question. Have you ever wanted to be a professional speaker? Well, if you join Toastmasters <laughs> and you study, but wait a second, stop. You just paved over the impact of that question. Have you ever wanted to be a professional speaker? One, two, three. Give your audience a chance to think about that, then go ahead and deliver your message. Right. And it also gives the speaker time to breathe, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So that they're speaking from more of the core of themselves rather than up high in the chest and throat, which is not a very good breath technique. So it gives a pauses, give the speaker, give the audience time to digest what you're saying and gives the speaker time to breathe and decide what they're going to say next. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if we ever get back in real rooms full of real people again in person, you're looking at those faces and you're watching those people and they're thinking. And you might even just by watching their faces, give them some extra time, count to five, count to 10, depending on the question that you ask. Make them wait for it. Don't move on until they're starting to lean forward in their chairs and get hungry for more. Pause is so powerful. Right. And don't you think that's a mistake people make a lot when they're talking on the web because they're not seeing people and they don't feel the need for the pause, but it's still there just as much? Absolutely. All right. So focusing on your listener instead of yourself, and we've talked about, about that, that can not only help you with stage fright, but it can also help you with the way you say something uh, because you can use all kinds of different vocal tone and inflection and rhythmic patterns and stuff like that to say the same words and come out with the meaning entirely different things, right? So when we read our listener 
or we imagine reading our listener, it helps our automatic nervous system choose how to shape the words coming out of our face, right? Absolutely. The other side of that is I've seen too many speakers who become speakers because they want to do their therapy on the platform. They want to make (laughs) this big confession to the audience and they conflate this with being vulnerable or, or being open and honest and authentic. So right. And it's one of my least favorite storytelling styles is the, if I can do it, you can do it story. And we've heard it a million times. Oh, I had a wonderful wife and two loving kids. And then I got into a little of this drug and a little of that drug. And the next thing I knew, I lost my job and my family and I was divorced. And I woke up cold one morning sleeping behind a dumpster. And I said, oh, I've got to get some help. (laughs) And I went through my 12-step programs and blah, 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 blah. Now I'm here speaking in front of you. And I just want you to know that if I can do it. You can do it. And it sounds so great, unless you're that person in the room who just can't break the cycle. And now they're just thinking that they're they're hopeless. Yeah. And that person hasn't really inspired anybody. They've just vented their issues, their dirty laundry. And hey, whatever helps people move forward, but you're really using the audience to legitimize yourself. Okay, so we've covered those three points. Now, are there any other tips that you have on telling the story in a more engaging way? And the word engaging, of course, means to engage the person you're talking to, whether you can see them or not. My golden rule of storytelling is that stories are always about people. They may seem to be about talking animals or aliens, but at least metaphorically, stories are always about people. If you're not talking about people, you're not telling stories. If you're not telling stories, you're not connecting. And if you're not connecting, you're not selling. And if anybody is thinking, oh, he used the S word, selling. What's this about? (laughs) It's like, look, if you've tried to put a child to bed, you're selling. If you've asked for a raise (laughs) or a date, you're selling. Selling is not the art of conning people out of their money. Selling is is about building relationships and convincing people that your ideas are worth listening to and that you are mm-hmm. likable and relatable. It's really a personal thing. And there are too many people who reduce it into a con artist science. But mm-hmm. we're all Absolutely. selling all the time. And where this turns out is, what are you really talking about? Are you talking about the, the square footage or the voltage or the price? I mean, are you talking about prices, processes, ingredients, and data, or are you talking about the benefits, the outcomes for people? Mm -hmm. Another great tip. All right. So let's talk about this. I find that creative people are often socially challenged introverts. When they're involved in their art or their music, they can focus like a laser, but they're often boring speakers, especially in radio and TV interviews. So much so that a lot of times when someone's signed to a label for the first time, they'll have a media expert come and help them figure out how to talk to people in interviews and on radio and on TV. So how can even introverts improve? What skills do they need to learn? Well, first of all, I lived on a sailboat by myself for almost 15 years. I I like to say I invented introvert. 
<laughs> and I work home alone with my dogs all day, and I am fine. <laughs> that was perfect. Did you hear that bark? <laughs> they heard their name. Yes. Right outside the door. Come on here. <laughs> that couldn't have timed that better. <laughs> perfect. I think that it is a learnable skill. I will always be an introvert at heart, but people who meet me, they hear me speak, whatever it is, and they're, they're astonished to find out that I'm not a big-time extrovert. And what I've done is I've just learned to ignore those voices of self-doubt that we all have in our heads. I have the same fears as everybody else. Things are not going to go right. People aren't going to like what I have to say. And it's like, well, welcome to being human. We, we all feel that way all the time. And <laughs> so I've just become very good at kind of flicking those little voices off my shoulder and continuing on. If people are really feeling crippled in that respect, I think Toastmasters is a wonderful program. That's a great idea. I've seen people who are pathologically shy, the ones who look at their feet and give you the limp noodle handshake when you meet them. <laughs> and three months later, they're up in front of the room waving their arms and talking. And it's, it's absolutely the cheapest and most effective therapy you can find for introverts. You'll find yourself in a very patient and supportive uh, room uh, full of wonderful people who are there to grow and help you grow. And it's, it's a great program. I've been involved with it for almost four years. Excellent. Yeah. That gives you a lot of opportunity to practice. I think another reason that people have trouble who are introverted or creative introverts is because they have kind of extra feelers out. It makes them really good at singing and songwriting and acting, maybe uh, making music of all kinds. But because they sense a little deeper or a little wider, a little more, they have extra feelers, they have too much sensory input coming in. What I find is that if they focus the feelers up on purpose on something, like let me tell you this because I want you to respond this way, that then they can kind of shut out that extrasensory perception because everything inside them has a job to do. Does that make sense to you? I think so. If you take, for example, an engineer and that engineer develops a chemical equation for making, I don't know, soup or a new metal alloy or shampoo, whatever it is, nobody's going to go up to that engineer and say, I don't like your equation. <laughs> they might say, I've got a problem with it. I think your your calculations are faulty. But it's it's very much in that realm of, of facts. It, it works or it doesn't, and it can be validated through empirical testing. But if somebody writes a song, they're storytelling, and they're, ex they're not only expressing a personal emotion, even if it's something that they can deeply relate to, or it's just a commercial song, but at some point, somebody's going to listen to that song or view that painting or hear that speech, whatever the creative output is, and they're going to say, wow, you made me feel something. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all done something creatively where we set out with one goal and maybe we made people, oh, I'm glad you laughed, but that wasn't my goal to make you <laughs> laugh. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's a very vulnerable place to be, whether it's professional or not. Being openly creative is emotional risk-taking, and I understand fully why people feel insecure about it. So I always say real singing is not for the squeamish, and I guess the same is true for speaking, huh? I think any kind of creative expression, 
But the sad side of that is too many people are, are you know, creating oil paintings in their basements that they never show anybody or writing screenplays mm-hmm. that they never share or whatever it is. And at some point, you just have to get out there and put that stuff out in the world and say, look, some people aren't going to like it and good for them. And I might never make any money off of it because art and business are are not necessarily connected. Mm-hmm. With writers, it's called it's called the bestseller list, not the best writer list. <laughs> so I think I think as creative people, we just need to go for it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And maybe like Van Gogh, it might not be your century, but I think that if you have it inside you to create something, that it will. You can just, you know, believe that it will be valuable because it's in you. Just almost like a reason to be. We share our gifts with other people, which is what speaking and singing are. When we make public sounds, it's to benefit somebody else. And it really goes back to that focus on your listener instead of yourself thing. Okay, so what are more common mistakes that speakers make, both on the storytelling side and also the technical side? Well, a couple that we see all the time. Let's just talk about some of the technical ones first is, hey, can you all see my screen? <laughs> you don't need to do that. If you hit screen sharing, they'll tell you if they can't, they'll stop you. But there's all of this, you know, checking with the audience and, and the apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry for that. And Oh, gosh, yes. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm sorry I'm this. I'm sorry I'm that. It's like, just get up there and go for it. What, whatever it is, whether it's your fault or not, or whether it's a technical problem. If you're a speaker, you're going to encounter technical problems. It's just par for the course, especially with virtual speaking. Mm-hmm. Assume that things are going to happen. Just ride through it. Mm-hmm. Just keep on going. You know, it's like it's like being in, in a relationship and being dumped and then begging. <laughs> What's that begging going to get you? Exactly. It doesn't endear anybody to you. Just show the audience how cool you are under pressure. If the slide projector blows, say, whoop, we're going to continue on without slides, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if your battery in your remote goes, you just step over to the computer and you hit the space bar. Or you say, hey, can somebody run that? Run those slides for me? My right. remote died. And so, I mean, you just... Just roll with it and like, oh, damn it. What am I going to do? Oh, and you start getting into that spot. Like that's what the audience doesn't want to see. Right. And another rookie mistake is running overtime. Oh, yes. Let's assume there are three speakers. There are two speakers before the closing keynote. So that's a total of three. And the first speaker runs 15 minutes over. Thinks, hi, gave that audience extra value. And the second speaker runs 15 minutes over and even gets a standing ovation and says, hey, I gave them a lot more than they paid. But that third speaker was paid $25,000 to deliver a 50-minute keynote, five zero minutes, which is now, because they have to close the convention down on time, a 20-minute keynote. And that person is not going to renegotiate their fees because the two not very professional speakers before them ran over. So they remember that, don't they? Yeah, you're not giving extra value when you when you take too long and, and cramp other people's spot. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're an opener for the, the main event, man, you, you better be making the main event look pretty good, you know, and people remember the people that book you for events and the people that might recommend you for events. 
Yeah, and I don't care how hot your band is, do not show up the main act. Exactly. We probably get sabotaged by the sound crew as well because they're probably with the main act. Okay. Uh, <laughs> can you think of anything better that people can do that are doing these concerts online where at the very end of this incredible song, there's complete silence, you know, because the fans can't clap except online. You see their little clappy hands there, you know, I mean, surely there's something creative the bands can do. Well, one thing, whether you're a musician or a speaker, it's hard to be up there sitting at a keyboard or holding a cello or a guitar or a bass or whatever it is and interacting with the chat window at the same time. Right. So it helps whether it's the vocalist or someone who's being your meeting monitor, welcome them in almost as if they're a band member and in between songs say, hey, Gladys, can you read us some of the reactions from the chat? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Get people interacting with that chat. And it works wonderfully in virtual meetings, too. It just It's a place people can express their ideas and their questions and have somebody there to support you who's reading that stuff and feeding those questions to you on the platform, on the bandstand, or you know, whatever. When I present from my home studio, I stand up. I've got a camera on the opposite side of the room and a nine-foot green screen. And I'm not able to really see the chat very well. So I have a meeting monitor help me out with that stuff. Hey, Dave, before we go on, we've got a question from Lewis. Okay, Lewis, uh, he's asking da-da-da-da-da, and I'll get on there and say, okay, did I answer your question? Super. Let's move on. You know, just keep people interacting. Yeah, and people, meaning fans and audiences that are listening to you, they want to know that you see and hear them. Another great technique you can use in Zoom, Zoom allows you to spotlight multiple people. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. First of all, make sure everyone in your audience has an up-to-date version because some people have you know, last year's version and haven't updated ah. it. And they push mm -hmm. a lot of updates. But so, for example, I'll do uh, one of my presentation skills workshops. I'll be up there talking and I'll give an example and I'll get a volunteer from the audience and I'll have my meeting monitor spotlight them too. Now, all of a sudden, there's two screens. There's me and the person I'm coaching live along with the audience. But the two big screens are there. Cool. And yeah. I, I'm interacting. And the audience is watching me interact with somebody. When they finish up, I tell everybody, let's show Maria some love. She did a great job. Either use the reaction button or clap on the screen. Let's, let's show her whatever it is. And then... My meeting monitor will get rid of Maria spotlight and it'll just be me. And then Maria will find the next volunteer, tell me who it is. All of a sudden, I've got two screens again and I'm ready for the next coaching session. Oh, that's it. so interactive and it's so seamless for the audience, but they're not looking at Hollywood squares. They're not looking at somebody speaking and then all of a sudden somebody coughs or sneezes or their dog barks and, and you're looking at someone other than the speaker. So the spotlight tools are fantastic if, if you use them properly for really keeping the audience engaged. Another ninja trick, guys. Awesome. I'll have to look for that myself. All right. So looking into the future, Dave, what do you envision really as the new normal of the speaking business? Are there opportunities that you found in this pandemic? There are always opportunities in change. And I would never have gotten my pardon the pun my act together as far as green screens and chroma key and software mm -hmm. and 
some of the things I've been doing, I just wouldn't have gone there without uh, this pandemic forcing t- forcing us to move into a virtual environment. And what I see coming next, because let's face it, there are plenty of people who are going to be thinking, no, my employees have been working at home for a year. I think I'm going to get out of this expensive lease, put the money in the pocket. They can keep working at home. That's been proven. And then you're going to get other employees who say, well, boss, it's cool that you're opening up the office, but I'm going to skip those two hours a day on the expressway I never got paid for and uh, tr- try to live a little bit longer and uh, to be just as productive if you don't mind. So we're going to have certainly people wanting to get back together. When it comes to the meetings industry, I think we're going to be moving toward hybrid meetings more than just virtual or just live. Ah. I'll give you an example. Every year, except the last year, of course, was canceled. I attend the National Speakers Association Conference. And it's in a different city every year. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's kind of a freak show. It's a <laughs> it's like going backstage at the circus. But it's this convention that usually attracts about 1500 people. Now they're doing their winter conference as we speak. But that's for a limited number of attendees in Atlanta. And most of the people are attending virtually. Very few seats. And then for the next one, the big one coming up this summer, I expect it'll be available for both. Now, usually there's 1,500 people there. But think if you're a big company and you're sending thousands of employees to Orlando for a convention or something like that. They're going to start thinking, I'd rather send those people home instead of pay for their airfare and their (laughs) hotel room. We're going to have... 200 people in a small hotel. We'll have our speakers there in the meeting rooms, and maybe a few of those speakers will be virtual. And then we will have the cameras and things in place so that those speakers can engage with the live audience and the virtual audience, and we'll have the people there to help them. The small hotels with eight or 12 ballrooms, Mm -hmm. If they set those ballrooms up with the right gear and the high-speed internet and the green screens and the backgrounds and all of the stuff they need, multiple cameras, they're going to clean up. And I think it's the great big convention center hotels. They're going to have a lot more simultaneous events going. It's going to be more difficult for them. You know, come to think of it, we've been doing it forever with sports, music shows, you know, huge audiences live, and then... You have the uh, all the virtual people that are watching on TV. Well, what's TV other than, you know, just Zoom, except bigger on, on screens? <laughs> but the trick is to keep it interactive. Ah. Because I want, for example, I want to bring people live up on stage when I do my presentation skills coaching program. But I also want to coach people in the virtual audience because they want to feel included too. They don't want to feel like second-rate attendees because they're not physically present. Aha, uh-huh, so interactive. I mean, have you ever gone to, to watch a keynote speaker and you're not watching the speaker on the stage because there's four cameras on them and the people are doing a live feed to the iMag display, this big screen over the stage. It's much more interesting, right? You get the tight head shot and they back up and there's the, the, the shot of the whole stage and then there's the the three-quarter shot and you're moving things around and it just it it looks magnificent oh yeah well music artists do it all the time too right so i'm thinking somebody 
somebody delivering that kind of experience to the virtual speakers. Whatever's happening on the iMag display is what the people in the virtual audience are watching. But then when it's time for Q&A, when it's time for interacting with the audience, what can you do to mix that up so everybody feels included? Mm -hmm. That's the new frontier for speaking. Yeah. Wow. You know, I I think that what you are talking about here could be very important for music artists as well as ongoing, because I think that we're still going to have a lot of the public, even even after the pandemic's over, we're all going to be a little skittish about packing ourselves like sardines into a, an amphitheater full of people with singers and musicians playing and moving air about like that. So yeah, I think we are looking at new inventions and new technology but it's all going to be more important if we can make it interactive. You're so right. People want to be seen and heard. They don't want to just watch. All right, Dave, you've given us so much to think about and so many little ninja tricks that can make a huge difference in our value as speakers, whatever we're doing. I mean, we can apply that to the classroom, anything that you're ta- you've talked about today. We can apply it to any speaking situation that I can think of, including when we're speaking over the phone, trying to convince somebody of something. We don't want to just speak at them. We want to speak with them. Thank you so very much for all this wonderful information and being so generous with it. Your books are available on Amazon. How can people get a hold of you? And what are you doing to continue to offer value to your customers and clients? Well, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn and Facebook, or just type my name into Google. I've been posting web content since the mid-90s, so I'm easy to find under Dave Bricker. My personal website is storysailing.com, S-A-I-L-I-N-G, storysailing. And that's where you can find out about the programs I offer. And I have just launched just sort of done a soft launch for a training program called 52speakingblunders.com. Ooh. It's subscription content. It's a video every week in your inbox about common mistakes that speakers make. And by speakers, I mean, it doesn't, I'm not talking necessarily about keynote speakers. It could be people who present at meetings, salespeople, anybody who speaks for a living, like we mm-hmm. spoke about at the beginning of this podcast. I may have to check that out myself, Dave. Man, we're in trouble when we stop learning, aren't we? No, life's no fun when you're not learning. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you are an incredible speaker's coach and I invite everybody to check him out. I'll leave the links to all that in the podcast notes. His last name is spelled B-R-I-C-K-E-R, right? That's correct. Dave Bricker. So thank you again, Dave. And I hope we keep in touch. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. It's been such a pleasure to be on your on your show. I love the whole vocal focus on this, not just because of the speaking, but because I'm also a musician and oh, cool! speaking to me is just another form of music. Absolutely. Well put. This is your host, Judy Rodman. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dave Bricker. I'll leave all those links to him in the podcast notes. You can always find me at judyrodman.com. Please leave a review if you like this, because it's the lifeblood of this podcast to hear what you think about it. See you next time for All Things Vocal, the podcast for singers, speakers, vocal coaches, and studio producers.